welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is technical columnist and author, Mike Elgin. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Glad to be on the show. I'm really pleased to have you on the show. I've been uh, reading your stuff for years, and I've always admired your work and the way you approach things. And so it's kind of fun to have you on the show. For the listeners, I'll give you a short introduction. Mike Elgin writes a popular weekly column for Computer World contributes news analysis and pieces for Fast Company and Security Intelligence, and also writes special features columns and think pieces for a variety of publications. From 1990 to 2004, you worked as chief editor of Windows Magazine, and you also host the Fat Cast podcast, that's a mouthful, about food and tech. So I want to get into all that, but first, I'm always curious about how people get into writing. You know, for me, it was, it was Mac Week. And Henry Knorr and Don Crabb, who inspired me to start getting into writing about Apple. How did you get f- first started into writing and then technical writing? Out of college, I went to UCLA. I got a job as a newspaper journalist in Santa Barbara County, which is where I grew up. And I worked there for about two or three years. And during that time, the publication company that I worked for called South Coast Community Newspapers was converting from a spectacularly old system of literally like pasting together the, the newspaper to wax a Mac-based system. I remember those yes. boards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you take a picture of it. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we, we were, we converted the, the whole network, the entire, it was a big, big deal for such a small publishing outfit. And, uh, I, I was really getting into it and we, we laid out the, the newspapers, we had three newspapers with Quark Express on what at the time was a gigantic monitor, 17 inches. Mm. It was, it went back, you know, it was like deep, you know, <laughs> all the way back. And, um, I realized after about a year of this that I didn't, uh, care at all about local water politics. What I really loved about my job was the max and the networking and the printing all that stuff was new we're talking about the 80s late 80s i should have said that 87 88 and so this is pretty early days in some of that stuff and i got the opportunity to go to brazil and do this cultural exchange program for young it was a city councilman was kind of kind of trying to bribe me in a way by nominating me for this program that was through the Rotary mm-hmm. Club. And they took young people under the age of 30 who were succeeding in their businesses. And I was the token journalist. And I actually got lost in a jungle in Brazil. Um, and while I was sort of trying to find my way back to the group, I mean, I wasn't lost, lost. It was like just, there was, there was like 20 minutes of like, where's the rest of the group? I had this epiphany. I'm like, what am I doing at local newspapers they have computer magazines. <laughs> I should work at a computer magazine because I love I love computers so much. And so, um, as soon as I got back, I started aggressively searching for a job in a computer publication. I assumed I'd have to new, uh, move to New York City, work for Zip Davis or something. But in my little hometown of Carpinteria, this is a little tiny beach town near Santa Barbara, there was this publication called OS2 Magazine. So um, their first episode was called OS2 Magazine. Their second episode was OS2 and Windows Magazine. Their third episode was called Windows and OS2 Magazine. Uh, 
And then I was hired. And then the first publication that I did was called Windows Magazine. So this is how rapidly OS2 was being made irrelevant by Windows. So This was that ill-fated venture between IBM and Microsoft to build an operating system. And Microsoft went off and did Windows, and IBM kind of lingered on with OS2. Is that, do I remember that right? Something like that. Yeah, it was. It was a OS two was a kind of a complicated uh, everything but the kitchen sink version that included Windows, included this, included that, and it was just too too cumbersome and and um, uh, ugly to 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 survive. Uh, and Windows kind of was ascendant, and so I didn't know it at the time. But they, the reason they hired me is they wanted they had a bunch of geeks and programmers and. And, and stuff like that running the magazine and they wanted me to give the sheen of having a real journalist because they wanted to sell it to another publishing company which they did that publishing company was cmp based in new york and so i was one of four people retained from the original publication and we all moved to new york so for the 90s the 1990s i was the editor of windows magazine Whatever it became of Windows Magazine, I don't think it's in print anymore. Is it even on the internet? No, they, no. What happened was um, there was a period of time in the late '90s when um, I don't know if you recall this, but the valuation. So Ziff Davis spun out their their you know their, their web operation into a separate company whose valuation was far higher than PC Magazine, even though it was just a website that reprinted PC Magazine articles. And it was that was the what was happening at the time. All the advertising was going online. And I could see it declining. So I ended up getting a job with a startup um, when they were still printing it. Um, moved to Silicon Valley, and uh, about a year later, I think they ceased printing the print publication. And then eventually they stopped doing the website as well. They, they really didn't have a knack for that sort of thing. And the DNA of that company really didn't have a knack for it. They ended up, it was a family owned publishing company and they ended up selling it and who knows, but it's, um, you know, the, the nineties were a glorious time for print computer magazines. Oh yeah. And after the, the big, night, the big yeah. uh, tabloids like Mac week and, and info world tabloid. Oh yeah. Glorious. Everybody was new to computers, but the internet wasn't answering everybody's questions yet. And so if you wanted to learn about computers, you had to subscribe to print magazines. Yeah. And, and after around 99, 2000, 2001 or whatever, all that was gone and people just um, tended to gravitate more toward online resources. But, um, but for about 10 years there, it was pretty great. And then after that, it was just, it was kind of over in terms of print publications. I ended up working for a startup um, that we were doing mobile computing uh, content that went belly up with the, with the crash um, 2000. And I ended up consulting on all that kind of stuff. And, and, and ultimately in a few years ended up uh, full-time freelance writing. And that's where I've been since. And uh, I really love it. So uh, I, there were pictures of you on your website with a MacBook air or MacBook pro. And I kind of yeah. sense that you kind of like fell into the Apple sphere at some point. I did. So there was a point at which um, I don't even remember when it was many, many years ago where I just got so fed up with Windows that I went completely. Might have uh, been Vista, huh? <laughs> Maybe did Vista do it? <laughs> oh, it might have been. It might have been. Yeah, could have been. But uh but it was, you know, it, a lot of it. I mean, 
a big part of it. So a lot of it was the, the iPhone and the whole ecosystem thing. So that got, got me in when the iPhone shipped, uh, if you recall, the first iPhone 2007 was tiny. Oh yeah. I still have my today's stand. Yeah. But I thought it was way too big. I like, that's why I didn't get it. Cause I'm, I'm not going to carry this huge thing because I had a Blackberry Pearl, which was this, you know, it's like a box of chiclets in, in size, had a little, had a little uh, scroll wheel and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. But once the app store opened up and I saw the apps available, I'm like, Oh man, I'm getting, I'm getting an iPhone. Got one. And once I got an iPhone, well, it's like, this is great. You know, it's like, and I, and I, that sucked me in. And for many, many years, I, my, all my equipment was Apple stuff. Um, nowadays I have, uh, I travel with a, an iPad pro, a 10.5 inch iPad pro. Um, I have a pixel four and I'll get into that in a second. And I have a Chromebook. So the pixel four is the result of my overarching philosophy that I just need the best camera. And I, I I'm sorry, I said pixel four, pixel three, I have the pixel three. Um, when I bought this some months ago, I thought it had a better camera than um, than the uh, the iPhone 10. Um, my next phone is almost certainly going to be an iPhone 11, so I'm probably going to go back to iPhone on that. But my whole philosophy is that I like to write. I don't like to be dogmatic about platforms. I like to use the right tool for the job. So, in my view, I use my iPad for certain content creation. So I do a podcast and I build it on there. I, um, I do it, all my reading and writing on the iPad. So reading and writing is my whole occupation. And I consider the, the a pixel book. I have the, the highest end pixel book has half a terabyte of storage and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a, it's an internet machine. So the way I look at it is that all the, all the platforms do all the things more or less, unless you're a specialist. But if you're doing hardcore content creation, a, a MacBook Pro is the platform. But it also does all the other things. And what tool do you use to write with your iPad? Scrivener? Uh, uh, no, I tried Scrivener and used that for a while, and I just didn't care for it ultimately. I just use um, Google Docs oh, okay. on the iPad somewhat obsessed by that and i use instapaper to for all my reading so i I, um and i think we're going to get into that part later but but um i also use my my biggest um obsession lately is notability with the apple pencil so i'm just writing down everything creating notes and i really really love notability but 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 regarding the chromebook i feel like if you're if you're a business user in an enterprise uh, you might want to choose Windows, and if and if you just want raw performance using the internet, uh, there's nothing like a Pixelbook. It's blistering fast. I can have 50 tabs open, and it's super fast. I can install, uh, you know, 30 or 40 or 50, I can have 30 or 40 um, extensions running at the same time. When you try that on a MacBook Pro, just just Chrome just crushes the performance of the machine because it's such a pig. But on a Pixelbook, it actually is very fast. So I kind of use my 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 Pixelbook for using the internet generally. I use is there a reason the for that difference? Is Google doing that on purpose, or is it Apple imposing some security 
constraints on tabs and memory space that, uh, that, that doesn't cause a limitation on the pixel book. Just curious. Pixel, I mean, the, no, but the, the Chrome, the Chromium OS is designed for extraordinarily low powered, uh, machines. I mean, the, the most Chromebooks to date have been, you know, $250 pieces of junk where you just have this super light OS and it runs fine. You know, that, that's just the basic idea. Uh, and then, but now the, 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 the Pixelbook has the power of like a real laptop, but it's using this lightweight OS. And, and it's also, there, there's a little bit of Apple-esque engineering behind the scenes where Chrome OS is kind of engineered for the device and the device is kind of engineered for the OS. And so it's just, it's just blistering fast. I mean, it's just the pages load instantaneously and it's su- obviously it's super secure. Every single tab is in its own sandbox. It, it, it when you restart the machine, it, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, you can't alter the operating system in any way. There's no way to do that. And so, um, it's a great machine for just, using you know the internet um so i i really i really enjoy it i there's a possibility that my next device might be a macbook pro but i'm not i'm just not blown away by by the by the new macbook pros i don't like the i don't like the ta- the taskbar thing i don't like any of that stuff and i i, I just uh probably don't care for that butterfly keyboard either huh uh, I've, I've heard really. that Apple's going and back to the scissors keyboard in all the future MacBooks. I've heard that too. I'm also hearing that the new um, uh, Pixelbook Go has a an amazing keyboard, so I'm I'm kind of tempted by that. But I probably won't buy one because I'm just basically happy with what I have, you know. And so, um, you know, the, the thing that I, I will say about my iPad is that I have some I have a um, pad and quill linen cover so it's it's a wood it's handmade wood case with this cover and i have a an elastic apple pencil holder so i always have the apple pencil with like physically attached to the ipad and i take this with me everywhere and i go to some pretty shady areas where you know i go to countries where nobody has apple stuff (laughs) and you know you you don't even dare wear ear you know uh, airpods because they'll say oh my god this guy is carrying apple stuff and apple stuff of course has super high resale value it's a great target for thieves but i walk around with this ipad and nobody knows it's an ipad because of this case and um and i carry it with me everywhere i go speaking of everywhere you go you have a very interesting lifestyle for a technical journalist a nomadic uh you mentioned to me before the show that you don't own a home and that you are all constantly on the move with your wife. That's right. Tell me about That's that. Right. How did you get into that? That's fascinating. Well, around 2004, I started um, freelance writing full-time, writing columns. And I'd sit at home, and uh, my wife would go off to work. She worked. She was a startup uh, person. She was like an operations person for startups. And... The startup she was working for got acquired by um, AT&T, so she ended up working at AT&T, this gigantic corporation, and uh, suffering from all the rules and, and, and the, the, the oppression of like just being this giant company and having this horrible commute in Silicon Valley and so on. 
and we we took a um, a month off to go to Greece, and uh, we're like she I, we could tell that we could make a living based on my income. And so she's like, I just can't, I can't go back. So she called AT&T and said, I quit. And we stayed in Greece for four months. And then we got back and we're like, okay, we've been paying, we've been paying for our house this whole time we've been gone. Maybe we shouldn't do that. So we down, but my wife said, ah, I don't want to get rid of my kitchen and all that stuff. So let's just downsize. Let's have a, you know, let's spend less on, let's, let's rent an apartment It'll be a, a smaller thing. It'll cost less, and then we'll have more money to spend on travel and all that kind of stuff. And we kept downsizing, 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 and at some point, we just downsized into a storage unit. <laughs> and uh, and and now we we live mostly in Airbnbs, and we spend we come back to the U.S. every month or two to see family and and so on. And um, and, and again, we've been doing this for. 12, 13 years, except for two years, I, I had a full-time job podcasting. Um, I had a daily podcast, so I had to be pre- uh, there. And that was for the Twit Network. And um, other than that, we've been nomadic and in, and mostly international uh, for, for many, many years. And it's just it's just fantastic. I even wrote a book about it called Gastronomad. Yeah. Uh, basic, basically telling people how to do it. And, and what the upsides and downsides are and how to make a living and how the economics work. What people don't realize, <clears throat> uh, a lot of people think that I have like scads of money because how, how else could I be traveling all the time and so on. Right. But the reason, the reason people think that it's expen- it's, it, it requires a lot of money is because we've all gone on vacations. You work and you work and you work and then you go on a vacation. And when you go on a vacation, you're paying vacation prices for everything. You, a hotel is far more expensive than an apartment. The restaurant is far more expensive than cooking at home. But you're doing those things because you're on vacation. So the whole time you're paying for a roof over your head and, 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 and food on the table and transportation while you're on vacation, you're also paying for all that stuff also back home like you're still paying your mortgage or rent you're still paying your taxes and you're still paying the insurance on the card you're you're paying everything twice and so it's very expensive but if you get rid of the stuff at home and just do the stuff abroad and you don't stay in hotels you stay in apartments and you don't eat in restaurants every time you cook and all that kind of stuff it's actually you end up kind of cheating the system because in my case i have an income that is a living wage in California, right? It's not a great amount of money, but it's like not bad. Uh, that goes a long way in Mexico City. Yeah. Or, you're in Mexico City right now, for listeners. I'm, I'm talking to Mike from Mexico City. Exactly. We have a really good connection. Yeah, it's great. And so, and so I, you kind of, you kind of, I'm kind of cheating the system because I, I, I have a first world income. And, and then my expenses can be whatever world I want. Like if I, if I wanted to save a bunch of money, I would move to Ecuador and I would pay $400 a month for rent and my, you know, it'd be really cheap to live. This is the thing that people don't realize about ordinary modern life, which is that the, your income is not that secure. Anybody could get laid off. You could, you could, it could go the other way too. You, you know, your, your, your uncle could die and leave you a million dollars. The, the, the income part of your, uh, financial situation can change and it's flexible. 
the expenses are not. You got to pay that mortgage every month. You got to pay the taxes every year. You got all those stuffs are kind of fixed. When you're nomadic, they're both flexible. You can adjust one to suit the other. You can ha- you you can I could go to Switzerland and I would be bro- flat ass broke in two months because everything is so expensive. Or I could I could go to some other part of the world and live like live in a palace and and you know it costs nothing. And so you can just choose what your cost of living is. Cool, cool. It's a fascinating story. Thanks for sharing. So, Mike, we have to take a break right now. Folks, I'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. I'm chatting with Mike Elgin. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com slash bgm. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with technical columnist and author Mike Elgin. So the second half of the show, I want to ask you some things about topics we discussed before the show, about things that are of interest to you, and a couple articles that I thought you wrote were really great. The first thing I saw was something that appealed to me, your blog entry about information overload. Yes. And how that happens and how you use tech to avoid it. Tell us about that. Well, something that occurred to me is that um, you have two constraints on how much you can learn and how much you can know, basically. Um, and those constraints are time and mental energy. And so, John, people like you and me, we, we have to be just reading all the time. Yeah. And in my case, I read to the point of exhaustion. I, I'll go through article after article after article, surfing the internet to the point where my brain just repels it. And what happens? You, I think, well, I'll just go to YouTube, you know, or you know, I'll go to Twitter. It's a common thing. We all experience this. There's nothing exotic about this phenomenon where we get exhausted and then we look for distractions and then eventually the day ends and we think, wow, I'm exhausted. I really did a lot of work. And you probably maybe only did four or five hours of work even though you spent 10 hours doing it, you know? And it's this relationship we have with online content. And at some point it occurred to me that there are there are five things that are causing this mental taxation, that are causing information overload. The first is acquiring knowledge, um, you know, learning about facts and ideas. 
the second thing is is visual information of pictures and videos and typography and colors and the size of the letters and all that stuff when you go from website to website to website to website your brain is like readjusting like oh now i have to shift into this like mode of reading and i have to ignore this you're making a hundred decisions every time you go to a website i don't want to read that that's an ad that's the thing i don't know i don't want the comments or maybe i want this comment and so you're just exhausting yourself with the visual noise of 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 switching from one uh, visually noisy website to another one. Uh, you're exhausting yourself through decision making. You're mentally ta- uh, task switching, and you're also mentally task switching between focusing on what you're doing and distractions in your environment. If you work in an office, somebody pops in, and they're like, "Hey!" and they, you know, they they interrupt you mid sentence in your mind. You're like reading something, and to switch to engaging in a conversation with that person to switch back to the content is it's it's like it's like a 20 they say it's a 20 minute you lose 20 minutes of time but it's also like 20 minutes of 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 exhaustion um, not that you're exhausted at that point so the simple idea that i have for conserving mental energy is that i separate learning from hunting hunting for content and we all have our systems for where we get articles and you know what sources we use and do we go to Reddit, do we go to there? We, and what I do is I never read anything while I'm hunting for things to read. As soon as I find it, I shoot it into Instapaper and then shoot another one in Instapaper. And I'll shoot hundreds of articles in Instapaper and then at a, at a time when I won't be interrupted, I'll open an Instapaper and Instapaper strips out all the visual noise. It puts everything in the same typeface. It takes away the ads. It like gets rid of a lot of distracting things. And then I can just read. You know, I could just read one thing after another after disconnecting from the internet. And this it has proved to be a huge boon in how much I can learn, uh, especially when I'm uh, developing ideas for columns uh, or books or whatever. It's a it's a fantastic habit to get into because you really you're really spending much more of your mental energy on learning and much less of it on just distraction, noise, task switching, and all those other things. Not to mention the fact that you're probably sitting in a less than optimum chair, hunched over at a computer screen when you should be That's in a more exact- relaxed physical position. That's exactly right. When I'm hunting, I'm typically using my Pixel book and I'm just going from page to page to page to page and then when i'm ready to do the reading part it's a lean back experience i grab the ipad um i uh kick back on a couch get comfortable and and that's a really good mode to for learning to to switch back and forth your physical position uh, and so on so so i i basically do all of my reading on the ipad and all of my hunting for information to read on the on the pixel book interesting Interesting. All right. And next article that I found was really amazing um, because I had not yet explored in detail the U1 chip. I know a little bit about the T2 security chip, but when I saw this reference you made to the U1, I started reading about it. Then I read your article. And it's fascinating. Ultra-wideband communications. Tell us about the U1 chip that's in the new Apple products. I think it's in the iPhone 11. Yes, it is. And they barely... They, I don't think they mentioned the U1 chip by out loud. I think it was on one slide. But this is basically a feature that um, 
now on on the on the iPhone 11, if you want to uh, send somebody something, um, you can basically just uh, uh, point it at when when you point your phone at the person you want to send it to, that person rises to the top. And so you you know if you're in a crowded room full of people who have iPhones, um, it's a way to airdrop something directly to a person. That's the only thing they're using it for right now. It's a, it's a, it's a magnificent technology that's going to have this incredible future. The other one is we've all heard rumors about Apple tags. I think that, that, that they're more than rumors at this point. And Apple tags is like, it's like tile. If you're familiar with tile, they're, they're ways to tag different things and then you can find it. Well, tile uses Bluetooth. Lots of things use Bluetooth. Um, and, and, and but Apple tags will work on the U1 chip. So the best guess about how tags will work is, you know, you lose your keys and you, you've got to go to work and where are my keys? So you, you pull up the, the, the find app, which now includes people, your, you know, find my Apple stuff and also find whatever I've tagged with Apple tags. Right? It's called GPS tags for the living come. room, right? That's what they call it. And basically, they use a, a phone augmented reality. So as you pass your phone, looking through the, ca- the camera, basically uh, around the living room, there'll be a, a big arrow or maybe a big red balloon hovering over where your keys are. Now, this isn't just directional. This isn't like your keys are in that direction. This is like your keys are twelve and a half feet in that direction. Mm-hmm. Cool. So the reason they could do this is because the U1 chip is basically radar. It uses time of flight to gauge distance very accurately. And so it's an ultra-wideband technology. Ultra-wideband has been around forever. But it's been a case where the industry has been kind of thinking about this for a long time. And there's there's so many different ways to implement it that nobody could really get it enough together. And that's why it's such a big deal that Apple is embracing ultra-wideband because now that Apple's doing it, Everybody's going to be jumping on board, and nobody was really expecting this. I mean, I, I think that um, you know people were expecting the the the, um, the the Apple Tags system to work on Bluetooth, and this reminds me of Apple's rollout of Bluetooth four. Now, Apple doesn't in many many technologies. Apple isn't the leader in the technology. They wait until the mainstream is ready for it, and when the mainstream is like seventy five percent of the way there. They announce something, and just by their announcement, they mainstream it 100%. So there are a few difference, a few exceptions to that. One of them is Bluetooth 4.0. Now, we don't remember now because it was ancient history, but the leap from Bluetooth 3 to Bluetooth 4 was gigantic. Bluetooth 4 was so much faster, so much more reliable, so much better at directional things. And so they built their entire eBay um uh, iBeacons, I'm sorry, iBeacons system. Now, iBeacons, the way they work is you get little beacons and you install them in physical locations. And then the distance between the uh, the phone and the beacon can be used by apps to do different things. It's great for museums when you get up to a certain, you know, you get up to the Mastodon display at the Natural History Museum. Right. It will give you information about Mastodons because it knows you're there because there's a beacon there. So it's Almost certain, based on patent applications in Europe and, and, and a few other points of uh, information, that they're going to move the whole iBeacon system to the U1 chip to, to, to this ultra-wideband. And that's going to be really revolutionary. That's going to make – that's going to deliver all the promises of iBeacon that iBeacons really didn't deliver on quite. 
uh, in spades because it ultra wideband is so much um, better. And understand how this is part. This should be understood in in the context of Apple putting together the pieces of the future of Apple glasses. Because with Apple glasses, in order to make them more like HoloLens and less like Google Glass, you need good positioning technology that's small and light and battery light and all that kind of stuff. And the U1 chip is the ticket for that. Because basically, the difference between these two, just to, to be super clear about it, is Google Glass is not augmented reality per se. It's it's a heads-up display. So when you have a you, you know when you wear Google Glass or when you wore Google Glass, uh, you see a little screen hovering in space, and you turn your head to the left, and the the little screen goes to the left with your head. It, everything goes with your head. With Hololens and Magic Leap virtual content the the augmented reality content is anchored in physical space and and with those advanced systems it can actually interact with objects so for example if there's a table and you have a little cartoon character dance 3d you know thing dancing on the table it can not only dance on the table it can not only fall off the table it can hide behind the table because because it, it has a spatial awareness a 3d spatial awareness of physical things in space and the u1 chip will give Apple some of that capability in smart glasses so that it'll be real augmented reality. Now, if they can get to the point where, you know, most likely Apple will come out with goggles that are not going to be socially acceptable, but we're all, we're heading to a world, call it 10 years, 15 years, I don't know what it is, but we're going to a world where ordinary, mostly more or less ordinary looking glasses will give you uh, 20, you know, all day interactivity with Siri or the virtual assistant of your choice through speech and whispering things in your ear and augmented reality where the objects are rooted in space. So is that going to require some coordination with the eyeglass industry? Because so many people wear prescription eyewears and you're going to have to somehow figure out how to go to your optician, order your prescription progressive glasses and then have this Apple system integrated into it? Am I thinking wrong about that? No, you're not. It's difficult to imagine what impact augmented reality glasses will have in the future. My own belief is that at some point, augmented reality glasses will replace the smartphone as the central uh, computing device in our lives. And we will, when you go to the optometrist, you'll be, you know, if you want smarter dumb glasses, okay, give me the smartest, an extra $250. And do you want this, that? Do you want Google Assistant or do you want this, that? And you'll say, I want the Siri or I want both or whatever. <laughs> and, 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 and then there'll, there'll be a special section at the optometrist. You'll have all the glasses, right? And then there'll be a special Apple section at the optometrist office. And there'll be one just like that at Best Buy. And there'll, of course, oh. there'll be a section at the Apple store where you can choose your lenses and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be so ubiquitous and so central to everything we do that even people with perfect vision will get glasses because they need the smart glasses. And I'm completely certain that this is where it's going. What I don't know is how long it'll take. I do think that Apple will do something for the face, uh, Sooner than people think, like maybe three years or something like that. Um, it'll be something. But I think within 10 or 12 or 15 years, 
we're talking you don't even need a smartphone or the smartphone interacts with the smart glasses or whatever but the smart glasses is the main interface because it's so compelling yeah to to have things just pop up have artificial intelligence whispering in your ear guiding you along giving you turn by turn directions as you're walking down the street uh, you can you can it'll ha- it'll be able to detect where you're looking and you can just look at a at a restaurant and say when do they close? And it'll say, oh, <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese closes at 10 o'clock or whatever. And and so it's going to be a magnificent world, but it requires a whole bunch of technologies to be not only functioning, but cheap enough to manufacture and also supported by apps. So all this stuff that Apple's been doing in vert- for augmented reality for the phone, it sucks to hold the phone up to, to get the augmented reality for the most part. It's, it's not how it should be. Yeah. But all of that development is going to be laying the groundwork for glasses. And that's really the, 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 the wonderful place for augmented reality. And once you have something that can tell where things are, that can instantly judge distances, that can map 3D spaces in real time. And by the way, not only would they be mapping 3D spaces in real time, but they'll be able to collect all of the mappings from all of the users and get a super high fidelity map of public spaces and so on. Google would do this too. It's going to be a wonderful world. But this U1 chip, this is this is a big, big piece of that puzzle that will get us to the point where we have real augmented reality for everyday people. Cool. Yeah, you've painted a very interesting picture of the future. One day we'll watch a movie in 2040, and there'll be a one-up a period piece where these teenagers will be walking along the street with a brick of glass in their hand. They're yep. staring at it, and we'll go, oh, yeah, the glorious teens. Yep. 2019, yeah. We'll all have wow. a laugh. I, I shared a, um, uh, a interview, I think it was David Letterman, interviewing Bill Gates in 1995. And, and David Letterman is like, well, what's this Internet thing I keep hearing about? Is that any good? And Bill Gates is like, oh, yeah, it's, you won't believe what's happening. As if Bill, you know, he learned about it like six months before that. Um, and the, the way they're talking about the Internet, I mean, we remember, you know, us old guys remember 1995 like it was yesterday. Uh, and to to hear them describe what is on the internet is just unbelievable how far we've come you know he you know bill gates was like oh they, you can publish things on the internet and other people can see what you published and david letterman's like really what i don't understand and it was just the whole thing was, <laughs> you know and and we're going to move and we're moving faster than we were moving then and so, like you say, 2040 will come around and we'll look back at, at, at the iPhone 11 and go like, oh, my God. It's like people actually. OK, did that. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. How did, how did they how did they uh, you know, how did they teleport? How did they how do they have telepathy with a device? Oh, they didn't have telepathy. What do you mean? How did they you know, so it's going to be it's, it, it'll just continue. But but the, the augmented reality thing, first of all, is going to be vastly bigger than virtual reality. Um, and it will be. I think, the mainstream platform. We have time for one more subject. We're almost out of time. I think you know a lot about the Apple Car effort from what I've been told. And you wrote an article about um, cars sensing our emotions. Do you think there's any linkage there between what Apple's doing and that article you wrote about cars sensing our emotions? Just curious. Yes, yeah, uh, absolutely. So emotion sensing technology, I think, is far more interesting and revolutionary than self-driving cars. 
Um, but it's also um, of a piece. So we're going to get just like the cars. We're not going to go from like, oh, I'm going to turn in my old Pontiac and I'm going to get a self-driving car. No, that's not what's happening. It's clear that cars will get gradually more self-driving. And likewise, cars will get gradually more emotion sensing, not just emotion but but understanding the context of what people are doing. So already there's European uh, regulations that require new cars starting next year, I think it is, 2021, maybe? Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, to, to tell whether somebody's drunk or sleepy. So cars, every car sold in Europe will be able to detect that fundamental, basic, uh, contextual information Just about the driver. Some, some background here, uh, emotion... Sensing emotion in a car, the, the overriding emotion is to reduce accidents because people get upset, they get distracted, they get road rage, they get drunk. So the the thing is, if you can understand what's going on in the cockpit, you can build a safer car. Exactly. And not just the driver, also the passengers. It'll come first. and the, It's already coming uh, with the expensive cars. But the way to look at the car of the future uh, the car of the present, you know, the high-end cars of the present and the cars of the future and ultimately self-driving cars, is there the, the sensors required to do autonomous navigation are mind-blowing. They're cameras, they're infrared sensors, the motion detectors, the radar, all this kind of stuff, LIDAR. We're, we're going to have as many sensors in the car pointing at the people in the car as we have outside the car pointing at the world and people outside the car. Uh, the cars will become the most intense, sensor-laden supercomputers crunching just terabytes of data per second about everything that's going on. Because self-driving cars is all about context. Where's the road? Is that a bicyclist? Is that pedestrian going to run out in the street? A ball just went in the street. Is, that, is, is it likely that a child will come chasing after it? Context. Sensors and, and AI and a lot of compute power are going to be... And uh, looking at the outside world, and they're going to do it on the inside as well. And it's some, and it's also going to, you know, if somebody's falling asleep, the car will just take over, pull over. Um, you know, it'll it'll help us in lots of ways and really start reducing. Uh, I think I think that before the self-driving cars reduce car fatalities, I think the emotion sensing and activity sensing technology will start saving a lot. Of lives before that even happens. Where does Apple fit into this? I really believe in the Apple car because the self-driving car of the future is a content consumption play more than a conveying physical bodies to from one place to another. Once people are in a car with nothing to do, they're going to want to listen to music. They're going to have video calls. They're going to want to engage in virtual reality and augmented reality. They're going to want to do things. Do you really it's think going Apple's going to build a car for commercial sale to individuals, or are they going to just build ride-sharing cars? You jump into, you hail it with your phone and jump into it and say, take me to the mall. Um, I don't know, and I suspect the answer is both. I think it'll be a lot like, it, it'll probably have a, an arch like the phone. I think we can get to the point where they're going to, you're going to subscribe to iPhones. We've been talking about this for years and years, but I think we're getting there already with the Apple card and the ability to make payments. I think the next step is you just rent a phone and you get an automatic upgrade. But in, in terms of cars, I think that um, what they're going to do it just like the iPhone. They're going to use a contract manufacturer. There's one in Austria they've been working with for a long, long time. But I think they're not going to, they're not going to build them just like they don't build iPhones. They're going to use car contract manufacturing to produce cars that are, you know, 
really nice cars, but but they're like the the entire uh, content consumption experience is Apple mediated. If you think about it, the we probably spend you know the average person probably spend two, three, four, five hours a day in cars consuming content. You think Apple's going to give that up and just have nothing to do with that? I mean, there's no there's no possibility. They want to control it, and and the whole reason, for example, Google uh, got into Android was because they couldn't give up control over mobile operating systems because they need to have their search engines and their like all these other apps uh, because they could imagine a day when they find themselves like Samsung, which is like if they don't get along with the operating system maker, they're out of luck. You know, Samsung or Xiaomi or whatever. Um, Huawei. Uh, Huawei. So um, anyway, I, I do believe in the Apple car for sure. I think it's coming. Cool. Well, we are out of time. You've painted a very interesting picture, a very positive picture of the future and what Apple can do with uh, with cars and with augmented reality. And uh, so thanks for coming on and telling your story, Mike. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Elgin. That's M-I-K-E-E-L-G-A-N. You can go to my website at Elgin.com or shoot me an email at Mike at Elgin.com. And Mike has a great book out called Gastro Nomad, Art of Living Everywhere and Eating Everything. And I wish I had more time to explore that with you, but we just didn't have the time. So maybe we can come back to that sometime in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. All right, great. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks again, John. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.